This is Dr. Bill Sinyard. We're looking at the difference between guilt, innocence, and honor, shame churches. And the question we're asking in this series is, is your church a guilt, innocence church or an honor, shame church? Either one is good or bad or right or wrong. They're both uh, biblical within certain contexts. But, but which one are you? So we've got a great dialogue going. And I've been trying to make the point that today's emerging adults... So 18 to 36 or so, including Gen Z and Gen Y, millennials, they're leaning more towards being shame-prone than previous generations. And and reminder, when we're speaking of generations, we imagine a bell-shaped population curve uh, because not everybody is the same within a population curve, but it's a definable curve with a median. And when we say they... When we're characterizing a population curve, we're generally speaking about the 68% plus or minus two sigma underneath the curve. And we're just basically saying that they reflect this description. It's not everybody looks the same, right? So in future podcasts, I will flesh out reasons uh, why. In this podcast, I want to add some nuance to the distinctions. Looking within the generations within the United States, there really is a notable shift from being guilt-prone boomers to being more shame-prone millennials. And again, it's not a right or wrong thing. Neither approach is good or bad. I'm not casting shade or uh, I'm not meaning anything disparaging or judgmental. Don't shoot the messenger. Here's the thing. It's just very helpful to missional incarnational leaders, uh, church leaders and mission leaders who want to grow, who've learned to listen and to get the feel of the pulse of a community, uh, in, in a way to honor the community by, by basically saying they have these interests, these needs, these demarcations. When I was a marketing consultant for Fortune 500 companies, man, it seems like a lifetime ago, we would spend a great deal of time identifying unique, targetable characteristics of certain brands and products and even companies that could be focused on to improve the bottom line or market share for the clients, all right? It is in a sense, what good missionaries do when they go to a village or a tribe or a country or a city. You understand the audience. You understand the desires, the wants, the needs, uh, SWOT analysis, the way they see the world, the way they, they are experiencing the world through their lenses. And you're able to speak into these things. It's just simple. It's not only good marketing and missions, but it's incarnational evangelism. In the case of boomers in the United States, uh, we tend towards a guilt-innocence cultural worldview. Again, not good or bad, it just is. Uh, by the way, it can be good or bad at the extremes of the bell-shaped curve. Honestly, it can be detrimental to the clear presentation of the gospel. It doesn't reflect Jesus at the extremes. But within the guilt-innocence camp, everybody's comfortable with the focus on right and wrong, good, bad, truth, lie, sin, judgment, repentance, substitutionary atonement, the cross, right? Check, 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 check. All of those are biblical concepts, good ones. But the Bible is not limited to just that cultural worldview and perspective, right? And in fact, honestly, the Bible was written within an honor-shame cultural context, Old and New Testament. All we're saying is that biblical scholars, teachers, preachers, evangelists should be aware and frankly skilled at 
other very biblical ways to present the gospel and, and to speak that gospel into their culture. And with the bulk of the world's population being honor shame leaning, it just makes sense that we explore this to see if we can be as clear as we can be here. The under the bell-shaped curve, 68% or plus or minus two sigma millennials noticeably tend towards being more sensitive to shaming. They are more shame-prone than their boomer ancestors. Last time I imagined to us two bell-shaped population curves on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being more guilt-prone and 10 being more shame-prone, boomers are closer to, let's say, a 4 mean, while millennials are closer to, let's say, a 7 mean. They overlap at the extremities, but they're different tribes in a lot of ways. There's similarities and differences. No judgment, just an observation. And they're leaving our churches, I'm suggesting, largely because they are feeling shamed by guilt-innocence churches, the words and actions. And we, we don't even know we're doing it. So I'm saying that they have a great deal in common with honor-shame cultures like China and Japan, for instance. Now, having said that, I also want to be clear that there's also stark differences between millennials' honor-shame cultural and, let's say, a Japan's honor-shame. The 68% plus or minus two sigma under the bell-shaped population curves, both have common characteristics of typical honor-shame cultures, and they have unique distinctions. Andre Crouch agrees. He would say that the honor-shame community of millennials in the United States is similar and yet very different from classic honor-shame cultures worldwide. He coins the term fame-shame culture. Here's what he says, quote, to be sure, the new media-amplified shame culture is different from traditional cultures built on honor and shame. Georges, who has spent most of his adult life in a traditional culture in Central Asia, expressed polite incredulity when I suggested that the West has become more shame-oriented. If anything, Western culture has become more individualistic over past generations, as seen in the continuous unraveling of ties to family and local institutions. Bestowing and maintaining honor requires the kind of binding community that Western mobility and personal freedom are practically designed to dissolve. So instead of evolving into a traditional, that's key, so instead of evolving into a traditional honor-shame culture, large parts of our culture are starting to look something like a postmodern fame-shame culture. Like honor, Fame is a public estimation of worth, a powerful currency of status, but fame is bestowed by a broad audience with only the loosest of bonds to those they acclaim. That's a CT article in 2014. David Cook concurs. He says, quote, There are also downsides to shame-honor church cultures. In extreme-honor-shame churches, everybody is perpetually insecure in a moral system based on inclusion and exclusion. There are no permanent standards, just shifting judgment of the crowd. It's a culture of oversensitivity, overreaction, and frequent moral panics during which everybody feels compelled to go along. If we're going to avoid a constant state of anxiety, people's identities have to be based on standards of justice and virtue that are deeper and more permanent than the shifting fancy of the crowd. In an era of omnipresent social media, it's probably doubly important to discover and name your own personal true north, vision of what is ultimately good, which is worth defending even at the cost of unpopularity and exclusion. The guilt culture could be harsh, but at least you could hate the sin and still love the sinner. The modern shame culture 
allegedly values inclusion and tolerance, but it can be strangely unmerciful to those who disagree and to those who don't fit in. That's David Brooks, New York Times opinion piece, The Shame Culture, March 15, 2016. So let me build on that. Uh, I want to contrast the two-thirds world shame honor culture or honor shame culture with what Brooks and Crouch are calling the media-amplified shame culture in the United States or fame-based culture by Crouch. And he's speaking primarily of of millennials here, but not exclusively. So if you look at where where status and honor and rightness and community comes from uh, with with the two-thirds world shame-honor cultures, it comes from relationships and roles within community that have been fine-honed over generations. Uh, For the fame-based culture in the United States, status and honor and rightness and community is defined by a temporary fame bestowed by broad, disconnected friends, uh, social media, internet, etc. So very different. One is is long-lasting and tested and guarded carefully. And here in the United States, this fame-based culture, shame culture, is temporary. And it's 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 uh, policed by very disconnected people uh, who can easily change their opinion. For the two-thirds world shame honor culture, uh, behavior is guided by this tribe, this community, these families. And um, for the media amplified shame culture, behavior is guided by fear. Fear of individuals being exiled and alienated and, and excluded. It is very, very different. It has similarities in that both of the reflections of shame honor cultures want to avoid shame and, and are pursuing honor and name and significant security and belonging. But how that's shaped and defined and policed and won and lost is so very, very different. The honor-shame culture uh, in the United States, this fame-based culture, is very, very fragile. And... Uh, yeah, it's, it, it leads to lots of anxiety for people who are trying to find honor and significant security and belonging here. It's easy to, to pick up in a day and easy to lose. So in a typical honor-shame culture such as Japan and China, the tribe's honor is key. Individuals will do extreme things to guard and protect the face of the tribe or tribal leaders. If someone shames their family or tribe, it's the innate cultural responsibility of the tribe to correct the shame, whether it's an individual, and they do it through public shame, exclusion, exile. But then it's equally the tribe's responsibility, the family's responsibility, the culture's responsibility to restore the wayward individual, to pursue. It's the tribe's honor and face that's at stake. Um, so it's all about community. It's all about keeping the community honorable and keeping the relationship sound. And not just an individual's conscience and behavior and individual punishment that we see reflected in guilt-innocence cultures, right? Where the wayward individual, the, the person who does something wrong, they're punished, they must pay for the crime, they must repent, reform, uh, enter into a probationary period where they're, we see if they're really serious, and, and then they can ultimately prove their reformation. They earn it back. The entire penal system, penitentiary system of the United States is a guilt-innocent reform icon. And in the end, uh, people who 
who break the law must achieve or earn their status back as worthy members of society again. So it's an it's achieved righteousness. It's an earned relationship. This is so different from an honor-shame uh, culture in that the person is exiled in shame, but honestly, they must await the tribe's public restitution of honor. Uh, how do you get back into the tribe? Somebody in the tribe has to ascribe that to you, has to proclaim you as a person of honor again. And usually it's done by a patriarch or matriarch who proclaims that the person is now considered to be a person of honor again. And we're to treat them that way, ascribed righteousness. By the way, that's a biblical concept. A great biblical example of that is the parable of the two sons that Jesus told a prodigal son. Remember, the Bible's written to and by honor, shame, bent folks. This was their milieu, the culture, their paradigm. After the prodigal son had publicly shamed his father and himself and his family and his village, and he went on the, a road trip to a foreign land, another act of shaming, right? He, he exiles them, and he shamefully returns after failure. Well, what happens? In our guilt-innocent culture, man, when we look at that passage, we really want to give credit to the son's repentance and reformation, right? He's, he's earning back uh, his honor. He's, he's dealing with his shame. It's on him. It's on his conscience and on his choices. So surely his brokenness is reflected. His words will earn favor and deserve favor and will lead to restoration of right status within the family, within the community. But no one in an honor-shame culture would buy that or even believe that that's what Jesus was talking about. Instead, it's the actions of the Father that's key for an honor-shame culture. It's the actions of the Father that restores the Son to former honor and glory. While the Son was a long way away, the Father runs to him. Well, that sounds very gracious, and it is, but in actuality, in an honor-shame culture, it could be considered a self-shaming of the Father. So someone who's reading the story would think to themselves, well, no one would shame oneself for, for someone who's not worthy of honor publicly. So the father is making a statement. It, it says something about how he sees his son, right? Does that make sense? Then he unilaterally throws a party to honor the son. Again, in the father's eyes, a reader would say that the son deserves to be honored again. And he invites the entire community to participate. This is very important. Put yourself in their sandals. The prodigal son would not have been a welcome person in the village because he had shamed the village. He had dishonored the village, the entire tribe. He was a dishonoring individual. That's not good for the culture, the village, the tribe. It's a loss of face for the entire uh, village. But more importantly, what he represented, right, give me my stuff, was deeply undermining to the entire culture, uh, the tribal structure. What if other sons in the village thought that was a good idea and decided to follow his lead? So it, it, he was a danger to the tribal structure. So we can guess that maybe they came to the party, but when they came to the party, it was to honor the father, not to honor the son, or to look at it differently, they would not come to the party because that would have dishonored the father. So what did they hear at the party? They heard the father proclaim that the son of dishonor is now to be considered a son of honor again. The father ascribes to the son reputation, honor, glory, worth, a name again. 
And it was the status of the father, it was the honor of the father that bestowed honor upon the son. It wasn't based upon the son's intrinsic honor, but the father's intrinsic honor. It is ascribed honor. Uh, This is what God did to Abraham. This is what God did to Moses. This is what God did to Israel. Ascribed honor. In honor-shame cultures, it's the community or tribe that has the right and power to reinstate a shamed son or daughter. There's a lot of benefits to that, right? But it's not up to the shamed son or daughter. It's up to the tribe. Okay, so back to millennials. While they seem to long for honor and glory arguably more than previous generations, or worried that they're not able to find it or will not be able to find it. Uh, so in, in the prodigal context, they're afraid that they're going to end up to be sons and daughters of shame. And But here's the point in the United States today. The millennials aren't really part of a tribe or a culture uh, social media is very loosely held together, and, and it really isn't a central shape of identity for people. There's no sense of community for them to trust in or to believe that that community has the power or the desire to, to care for their uh, restoration if they fall out. I mean, the social media have your back, millennials. No. So millennials are arguably more sensitive to being shamed, right, being kicked out of that community social media, uh, or, or able to get on earth by means of social media and, and whatever groups they may have than previous generations. Uh, the boomers believe that you earn your honor, earn your righteousness, right? Um, an honor-shame person is looking for a community to bestow that upon them, to recognize them as honorable people, Simple. And and if you fall, if you're bullied uh, by cyberbullying, or if you make a misstep on social media, who's going to restore you? And how do you get restored? So there's an anxiety about losing your honor, even if you can get it. So I'm speaking of social media, arguably the emerging adults tribe, but it, in many ways it's dysfunctional. It doesn't suit that purpose well, but that's all they have. So there's no father, good father, who will ascribe them Uh, honor uh, will restore them. There's no community that's dedicated to restoring people who've who've fallen out of favor. So if you get cyberbullied, for instance, and are shamed, deep level, helpless, powerless, identity shaming, there's no internet father who reverses the shame or has the authority and the desire to ascribe worth to shamed uh, community members. So if they say something on a tweet and it goes viral, ignites a firestorm of criticism and shaming, there's no respite for them. Not really. Uh, The explosion goes away eventually, goes in a different direction, but that person's identity is is shaped uh, for all times. There's no path of reparation. There's no path for rebuttal, for for justice, for name restoration, healing of wounds. This is so dangerous and so anxiety-producing. It has to be. No wonder why suicide is up in these generations. The society, the, the social, no wonder depression, loneliness, and suicide is up in, in these generations. If I depended upon a tribe for my sense of worth and name, and in this case, the global, largely indifferent, collective body of internet users, social media, culture, and they turned on me, right, unfairly, mob mentality, uncaring, Anonymous, shaming, brutal, bullying. Well, where do I go? They were my family. They were my tribe. And clearly they didn't have my back. 
I was lonely before and anxious. Now I'm devastated. So where do I go for significance and security and belonging now? So who do I trust when my tribe betrayed me? All right, we need to end here. I want to come back to this in the, in the next podcast. We'll pick up with the nature of cyberbullying and uh, some of the source of anxieties of the emerging generation now. Okay, so we'll see you next time on Gospel Rants. Hello, this is Dr. Doug Grotheis, host of Truth Tribe, where we seek the truth through reason and evidence about what matters most. And we are not tribal since truth is for everyone. Please join me at the Truth Tribe as I discuss the reasons for Christian faith, the Christian worldview, and moral issues such as abortion and gender ideology. To listen now, go to lifeaudio.com or search Truth Tribe on your favorite podcast app.